This is Kirsten Kemp for the fall semester 2018 Developing Museum Web Projects with Dana Greel. Uh, today I'm interviewing our guest expert, Sarah Wombold. She is the Director of Digital Media at Clifford Still Museum in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Kirsten. Happy uh, to be so with good you. To have, yeah, it's so good to have you um, on the interview today. Um, so as I just mentioned, you're the Director of Digital Media at the Clifford Still Museum. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your current position and what it is that you do there? Sure. Uh, so the sort of simple answer is that I am in charge of front-facing digital content and uh, platforms. Um, so that includes, so that's all visitor-focused um, technology. Uh, it includes video and audio production, content production. It includes uh, websites like our main website, our online collection. It includes digital publications. Um, it includes some digital signage in the museum, um, which is a, probably a little bit of a gray area with um, information systems. But um, for me, for this museum, it's with me. Um, and that, that's, I suppose, in a thumbnail, that's about it. I also do a little bit of graphic design just because I have some graphic design in my background. Um, yeah, that's it. So um, in a given year or so, how, like, how many visitors do you think that you guys receive there at the Clifford Still? Um, on site, we see upwards of 45,000 visitors a year. Um, we are a small museum located in Denver, Colorado. We um, only show the work of abstract expressionist painter Clifford Still. Um, he died in 1980, and uh, when he died, he had 95% of everything he'd ever made in his personal estate and his, his wife's estate, and um, he wrote in his will that he would donate it to a city that would open a museum to be the custodians of the collection and his legacy. Um, and so it is the largest intact collection of, from any major artist from any century, and it's in Denver. Wow. So he, so his um, background wasn't necessarily from Denver. It's just that's where his collection ended up. Yep, that's a really good question. Oh, wow. He he um, had uh, not no ties to Colorado, but not many ties to Colorado. He was born <laughs> okay. in uh, uh, North Dakota, and um, as a child, his father moved their family to rural. Uh, Washington State and Alberta, Canada, where they farmed. And so he grew up in the Pacific Northwest, um, spent some important time in San Francisco and across the country in Richmond, Virginia, um, and then was in New York City at the height of the abstract expressionist movement before he slowly kind of removed himself from the commercial art world there and re retired, so to speak, in um, rural Maryland. And that's where he died. Oh, that's he, so interesting he, that he just kind of made his way all across the country. Yeah, he was he was bicoastal for sure. And he he spent one summer in Boulder, Colorado, which is not far from Denver, um, teaching at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Okay. So do you find that a lot of your visitors um, do they that they don't maybe have a prior connection to his artwork or? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's. 
it, that's a really insightful question. We we have um, there aren't very many Clifford stills out in the world. Like I said, we own 95% or the city of Denver owns 95% of everything he ever made. Um, so there aren't many places where you can see Clifford stills paintings. M uh, most of the major museums in the country have, you know, a few. Um, the largest collections outside of Denver are in San Francisco at SF MoMA and at the Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo, New York. Um, and those those collections are just over 30 paintings, I believe. Um, so, but those are the largest collections outside of Denver. We have just shy of 850 paintings and I think well over 2,400 um, works on paper. So we have a we have a oh, wow. And no one else actually has any works on paper. He didn't let those go. Um, yeah, so he had very specific ideas about who could show his work and who could buy his work. Um, and that's sort of how he amassed this huge personal collection um, and why it's so intact, um, which is getting back to your question. Um, we are, um, he wrote into his will that we could not show any other work besides the work of Clifford Still. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we have visitors from around the world who maybe know his name because they're familiar with abstract expressionism or they're art history buffs, and they, you know, make pilgrimages here to see <laughs> this museum because you can't get an experience like this anywhere else in the world. Um, but we also have a lot of visitors. Um, I would say the majority of our visitors are first-time visitors, and they may or may not have any prior knowledge of, of Clifford Still. Okay. Um, do you find that that makes your job as a digital media strategist easier or harder because you're maybe um, having to tailor your content to people who don't really have a, a good basis of his work, or mm -hmm. do you think it's the other way around? Or maybe well, both? I think I think it's um, me personally. I see it as a huge advantage. Uh, I came into this role after working at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago for a number of years, and of course we were showing the work of mostly living artists. Um, and mm -hmm. there was that was a a very interesting time, you know, for me professionally. There was always new content, new ideas, new artists to interview, you know, new things to explore. Um, and it was great. And and Clifford Still Museum is sort of great in the exact opposite way <laughs> because it's Clifford Still all the time, every day. And right. so in, the, in some sense at the MCA in Chicago, we were kind of always in a position where we were, you know, pushing and thinking of new ways of doing things and which is really interesting work, but by the end of it, you're kind of thinking, or at least I was thinking, what what is this really accumulating to? Is it more than the sum of its parts, or are these a bunch of one-off projects? Um, and then coming to the Clifford Still Museum, where everything I produce has, you know, a, a long lifespan. You know, the content I produce is always applicable because it's always about Clifford Still or abstract expressionism. The platforms that I that I lead um, have much longer lives than the platforms that I made at MCA, so that's really satisfying for me from a from a strategic point of view. And I think it's I think it's a good challenge 
um, for us, uh, you know, to make sure that we are preparing visitors who maybe have no frame of reference for this work um, to try to guide them along in their understanding of painting, of Clifford Still, of abstract work, of abstract expressionism, if we get that far. So I, th I think it's a really interesting challenge. Um, well, that leads actually into my next question was going to be, um, considering that the Clifford Still is, is technically a small museum, when actually has a singular focus for the most part. Um, I was going to ask you what are some of the challenges presented by working there and then how do you handle those? So do you have any more like really specific challenges that you face even just day to day? Yeah, um, you know, he still is not a known name. So we have to, um, we kind of, we're very fortunate again that we have this great story. We have Clifford Still as a character is is an you know an unbelievable character to work with. Um, but we're we're we are sort of trying to start from the beginning a lot. You know this is this is who this is. This is what he believes. This is why the museum is here. We have a lot of things that we need to get across in a short amount of time. Um, I think from a visitor perspective, one of the things that we have learned through some um, visitor studies is that our website has not always communicated what the experience of coming here is. Um, and so trying to communicate what that experience is and, and show it in a way that it feels like it's meant for you, you know, whoever you are, I think that's always a challenge, probably for any museum. Um, yeah, there's some there's some barriers to entry here because, you know, Clifford still, if you don't know his name, he could be anybody. It could be a donor or a collector or, you know, a hedge fund operator who <laughs> founded a museum, you know. So there's right. certainly some challenges with name recognition. Um, yeah, and it's a it's I think the other the other. The other challenge, maybe not quite so much for me, but for some of my colleagues, is how to make sure that the experience here is always fresh. We we have a collection; it's a great collection, um, but but we're always drawing from the same collection. You know, we we I don't know how many years it would take for us to show everything that we have, um, but they're for the most part they're big, beautiful, in my opinion, colorful works of art, abstract works of art. So I suppose there's a certain segment of the population who maybe um, doesn't know about abstract art or doesn't care for it. Is the experience of coming here going to be that different a month from now, a year from now? Like why why would they come back and see this collection again? So right. um, I suppose that's a, that is a, a big challenge. I, we have, a, it's a, beautiful museum with a beautiful collection so usually the people that are predisposed to it <laughs> to like it really like mm -hmm. it and they come back a lot um they're sort of our our ambassadors um but yeah i think the perception is that you know i went once why do i need to come back right um that i mean that's just such an interesting take on a museum from what i've 
you know, been personally been accustomed to or what I've experienced even. So um, I feel like most other small museums tend to have the opposite problem where they a lot of times just get so much stuff donated to them. Um, for instance, the museum I'm focusing on for this project, uh, its focus is and its mission is embracing the history and you know, uh, message of, of Williamson County, Texas. And it's like, what does that mean to all the different residents who have lived there over such a long span of time? You might just get, you know, not that we want to call it junk, but you might just get something that was very memorable to some random resident of your county, but maybe doesn't really play into the larger, you know, the larger picture of the county as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I feel like that could go maybe both ways, depending on just what your collection focus is. Um, and how do you make that relevant to your visitors always? Um, mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting take to hear of like a singular focus museum because I'm just not as familiar with that. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm um, going back more kind of um, directing to like your actual job function there at the Clifford still and creating the content for your website and your, um, do you also manage the social media channels there? Or do you have someone else that does that? Um, I do not manage social media. Um, okay. It's managed by our Director of Marketing and Communications, and we have a, um, someone whose title, I think, is Editorial Assistant. Um, okay. She generates the content for it. He sort of oversees the, the channel. So no, that's not in my purview. Okay. Um, well, so when you're developing um, content for your, you know, website or the digital strategy that you're working with, do you have a specific process that you follow? Is it kind of a typical process that all, you know, managers of digital media follow, or have you kind of honed your own process over the years? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think it, this is a, not, probably not a very helpful answer to your question, but I think it depends on the project. Mm -hmm. um, there, some, you know, um, I'm, my brain is going through a Rolodex of projects right now, so I can give you some specifics. But, you know, I think there are certain projects that, you know, all projects have different stakeholders, and the stakeholders might be internal and might be a mix of internal and external. And, you know, it, it the process is different depending on what that looks like, what the goals of the project are, what you're working on, who the stakeholders are. Um, mm -hmm. And if and if you're, you as the digital media director are in a position to lead the project or not, there are certain things that, that come up here that, um, you know, we, we're sort of an internal vendor to the client who might be in marketing and communications or audience engagement or something like that. So it really depends. Um, I would say when I'm leading a project, um, the, the um, online collection website would be a good example of this. Um, you know, I was given a directive by my director to develop a website to, to um, provide an experience of the collection online. Um, that project kind of cut across the organization on the collection side of things, which is not atypical. It's very typical of an online collection project, but um, l maybe less typical of the general workload that I do here, which is maybe 
I'm interfacing more with marketing and communications or another department on the kind of support or administ administrative side. Um, but for the online collection, um, the internal stakeholders were the director, uh, the collections registrar, a curator, um, our archivist, and me. I think that was it. And so once I got the directive from our director, I had a kickoff meeting with everybody so that we could all get our ideas out on the table for um, answers to some key questions. And those questions are usually, who is the audience? Who is it for? Who are you designing it for? Um, what are the goals or priorities? You know, what do you, what do you want to make sure that you are doing with this thing that you are building? And sort of understanding how the project is going to run from there. Um, I think it's also if you're if you're managing this project, especially one that cuts across the organization the way that the online collection does, it's really important to get an understanding of your colleagues' priorities mm -hmm. and their you know, their workflows and processes, where this is, where this project fits within their priorities. You know, they, ha they have a boss, too, that gives them priorities. So trying to mm -hmm. figure out, um, just trying to figure out how you're going to be successful in navigating that dynamic is um, helpful. And then for, just to continue on with the online collection as an example, um, we do not have any in-house developers at the Clifford Still Museum, and we don't have any in-house designers. I do a little bit of design, and we, but mostly we contract um, with a vendor for print stuff, but digital stuff is sort of a kind of a wild west scenario for me. Um, we go out and f I go out and find freelancers um, all the time, depending on the project. So for the online collection, we did a request for proposal, um, an RFP process where we wrote mm -hmm. what the project was going to be and and distributed that as widely as we could. Um, I took in and processed all the um, proposals that we received, and then we reviewed them as a group. And as a group, we decided who to go with. And then from there, I became the internal lead for the project. So there was a there was a lead on the developer designer side, the vendor that we decided to go with, and then I was the lead from the internal side. So, and it was just sort of a typical project management role at that point, where he was communicating to me what what they were doing. I was communicating to him what our goals and priorities were. We were giving feedback on their designs. You know, everyone was. He and I were both in charge of making sure we were on deadline and on budget and, you know, kind of typical project management stuff. So that's gotcha. one example. So, so since you're um, freelancing and contracting out a lot of that, you know, digital content um, through the design aspect, how are you ensuring that it um, is in line with, like, the look and feel of your overall website? Were, were you in charge of, you know, designing your museum's overall website, or did you guys also contract that out? So that's a good question. I um, I am responsible for the website. However, I didn't do it when I was in house, <laughs> so I left. Okay. I left the MCA Chicago and moved to Denver, and I was a consultant for about two years before I came in house here. And one of my projects, my my client was the Clifford Still Museum, and so okay. I led the um, 
in that case, I was the vendor, um, and I led the redesign project outside the organization. So, but to get to your first question, there we have um, we have a document called um, identity guidelines, which is pretty typical um, that mm -hmm. has our logo form and our um, color palette, our typefaces, and it's all articulated what what the brand should look like. Um, I, as a consultant, I hired a designer. He was given the identity guidelines, and fortunately his aesthetic um, worked very well with the, the in-house brand. It wasn't a problem for him to work with that at all. Um, yeah, so I think when you have documents like that um, that really establish the parameters, I guess, for the organization, mm -hmm. whether that's um, an editorial style guide, we we uh, write out dates this way. We always speak in third person. We always use active voice, not passive mm -hmm. voice, whatever it might be. When you have documents like identity guidelines and editorial style guides, you know the more things that you can kind of establish um, along the way after you kind of have things really figured out and kind of dialed in, um, then you can use those documents to communicate with your vendors about your expectations. That's a really good point. I hadn't um, throughout the semester with you know developing my project um, that I'll be delivering later on, I hadn't, aside from just, you know, ensuring that the logo and colors, you know, were the same as what the museum I'm focusing on uses, I hadn't considered, you know, their prose style or, you know, um, anything other than just what font they're using. That's pretty typical just when you look at a website, but are they using that across the board with all of their publications, all of their print mm -hmm. materials? Mm -hmm. um, so you have a more of a cohesive voice, you know, your identity when, when someone outside of the organization sees that logo, they can actually identify it with, you know, the, the, the tone of voice of your website and everything else exactly. that they've encountered. So yeah. that's a really good point that I had overlooked so far. So uh, thanks for touching on that. Appreciate it. Sure. Um, that's a really good one. Um, so then how would you say that you measure the success of your online projects? Uh, are there specific metrics that you use? Um, they're in-house, is there a specific, um, like aside from the physical, you know, measuring with the actual data, how would you say that the Clifford still would say that they have reached success with a project? That's a, another really good question. And again, it depends on the project and the goals of the project. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that um, I try to do at the outset of a project is identify like I've already said, who it's for and what the goals are. Um, and it, you can, you know, you can usually, it's sometimes tricky to understand or to um, identify a specific metric for meeting the goal. <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. the goals are not so easily defined in those terms. Um, but usually they can lead you down a path for identifying it. So, um, you know, we we really don't pay too much attention to our overall website statistics, which is maybe a strange thing to say. Um, 
because it's 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 sort of relative. Like I what I prefer to do with website statistics or, or and data like through Google Analytics is try to understand what audiences are doing. So there's no sort of raw number that I look to and think, oh, yep, our website's really making the mark because I can't determine from just very simple, you know, quantifiable numbers what people are doing, <laughs> you know, what their needs are. Right. Um, so you sort of use that data, data in concert with other things um, to give you an idea of whether or not you're hitting the mark. Um, another project uh, that I can cite in this capacity is our first digital publication. So we did a digital publication for um, Clifford Still's works on paper. Um, so his drawings and his paintings on paper. Um, this, it was, uh, the digital publication coincided with an exhibition, which is a lot of how my work is driven. Um, it's, even though it's all Clifford Still all the time, it's still driven by the exhibition schedule to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. um, and we did, we did a digital publication for works on paper, and the, it's important to know that the works on paper had really never been shown. We, I think, in the the museum opened in 2011, so there's usually always been one gallery of nine galleries that's been dedicated to works on paper, but there are, like I said, over 2,400 works on paper, so the, the bulk of that collection has never been seen by anyone, um, certainly since the artist died in 1980 and the estate was sealed from public view. So there's there was a lot of important scholarship you know, in doing that, in putting the works on paper on exhibition um, and understanding how Clifford still used drawing as part of his artistic process and growth. Um, and we wanted to be able to distribute those works as widely as possible because they hadn't, they'd never entered the world. Um, so that became the driver for doing a digital publication for free online so that we could expand beyond Denver in a way that if we did a print publication, wouldn't have as far of, of a reach. Um, we did, uh, for the digital publication, which is essentially a website, um, though I can certainly speak more to what, it, what the difference between a digital publication and a website is. Um, the, we used the website to sort of generate a print-on-demand book that we ordered and sold in our store. So there was an online digital version for free, and there was a um, printed version available for purchase, just, just like a book um, in our bookstore at the museum. So um, we had never done a project this way before. It was the first digital publication, and we had no idea what the goals should be and how we should measure the success of them. Um, so we sort of used some models from print 
to kind of inform where we might go. So I, I can't remember the numbers now, but um, we, you know, I worked with our director of retail operations, our visitor services person here, um, to determine how many books in a typical print run we would have to purchase at the outset um, to, to, to do a print run. And it was, I don't know, something like 1,500, I'll just say. I don't, I don't think that was right, but we'll just say that that's how much it was. So the goal for the digital publication became that many unique users in six months. Like we would never sell out of a print run in six months, you know, probably ever. So that sound, seemed like a good enough goal for us if we got that many eyeballs on the digital publication in six months. Um, we were going to be happy with that. And we reached it right at the six-month mark. Um, oh, wow. We, I had worked with a, a friend of mine and, and somebody who works in digital publishing at the Getty Museum who um, does he, he does digital publications. He's the digital publications manager at the Getty. Um, they had released a few. We sort of took, you know, conceptually we took from their model and what they were doing. And so I had some of his metrics too so that I could compare with with how we were doing, which also helped inform the success of that project. Um, and we sold out of the press run, I think, after a year. We had to do another run of catalogs. So I, I think by kind of many standards. Oh, and we, we also looked at, I also looked at the um, um, distribution of it across the world. Um, and we we certainly extended beyond the country, so we felt like that mm -hmm. was a success too. We didn't really have a whole lot. The only frame of reference for our kind of geographic reach was looking at our main website and seeing sort of um, um, looking at percentages of who's coming from the UK and who's coming from China, for instance, or whatever, not China, but. And, and that's just done using like IP tracking, right? Yeah, yeah, just okay. through Google Analytics. So we. Okay we determined that we had a higher percentage of people outside the country coming to the digital publication than we oh, did wow. to our main website. So we felt like that was also a success. Um, and some of that, you know, when, you, when you're sitting down to launch a project and you're determining who your audience is and what your goals for it are, you know, our goal was to have this global reach. And so we, you know, brought our director of marketing and communications person in to say, okay, we want to reach these people. We want to make sure that we know about them. How can you help us with that? So he was able to to distribute a press release that would reach those people. You know, that that probably did everything for getting that that kind of reach that we saw on that particular product. So, you know, I think Doing, defining the audience and the goals and the priorities in the, in the first step so that you can prepare yourself along the way and set yourself up for success is part of it. And when you de determine what the goals are, then you can figure out how you're going to measure to those goals. Gotcha. Um, that's, I'm, I'm not really um, familiar with what digital publication was, so I'm glad that you kind of 
shed some light on that for me. Thank you. Um, sure. I saw that when I was um, kind of cruising through the museum's website, and I was a little curious what that was. So I'm probably going to spend some more time on there for you guys later. Boost your visitor numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'll look for you. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about that now. Um, one other thing that I noticed from your own personal website um, that you talk about was your involvement in a visitor motivation survey that you conducted with Marty Spellerberg. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Can you just like just briefly um, give a little rundown of what that focused on and why you thought um, that that was an important survey to conduct? And um, I noticed one of the things you mentioned about it was it was one of the only, um, I think you said it was one of the only surveys to take John Falk's um, visitor identities and then have actual museums um, mm-hmm. be involved with it rather than mm-hmm. the users, mm-hmm. um, if I'm quoting you correctly. Um, so if you can just give us a little rundown of, of the importance of that study. Sure. So are you familiar with John Falk? Yeah. Research? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So um, my longtime collaborator, Marty Spellerberg, and I have been working together for a number of years. Um, we were both consulting at the time that we cooked this up, and it was actually Marty's idea to use John Falk's um, visitor identity-related visitor motivation types as user personas for websites. Mm-hmm. Um, we had been at a conference, and I think, again, it was the Getty Museum um, who had used Falk's personas for on-site visitation, for categorizing on-site visitors in order to inform a kind of um, tour design or experience design because the Getty is so big. It was sort of like breaking down visitors by type so that they could see Mm -hmm. what was most relevant to them. So that was the jumping off point for us. Um, But no one had used Falk's um, types as user personas. People had looked at Falk, Falk, certainly. Um, There was a really good study that came out of the Indianapolis Museum of Art in, I think, like maybe 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I actually have that article pulled up right now. <laughs> oh, great. Rob <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar. and Sylvia, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they looked at Falk for what they were doing and ultimately did something else. And this was when I was still in-house mm-hmm. at the the MCA Chicago when they did that study. And I took that study and I repeated it for the MCA. And I, after doing that study, which I had Marty's help with, I was looking at the data and I thought, this really isn't yielding anything insightful. It's, you know, the, the categories that they used for their survey were like, I'm here to make a transaction. I'm here to research. I'm here to do this. And it, the, it did, it did, I guess, confirm that people who were going there to do a specific thing tried to do that specific thing on the website. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It didn't really inform. Um, I didn't think it. I didn't think it produced much. Many insights for. Um, I guess who the who these visitors are. So the, we used Falk's personas and recruited, I think right now we've had, by now we've had like 25 or 26 different participants in this study um, wow. across 
the country and a couple who are international um, who ran the same survey on their website and then we collected all the data and kind of put it all together. Um, I think the things that are maybe interesting about using Falk is that because Falk comes from an on-site or um, user perspective, visitor perspective, these types kind of assume visitation. You know, the facilitator mm -hmm. is someone who's coming in a group and um, the seeker is somebody who's come because it's been recommended to them and so on. So it's, it's sort of coming from a point of view of like people are on the site probably to plan a visit. It's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. And, uh, and so it's, it's not comprehensive in that way because certainly you can engage in a lot of other activities online that have nothing to do right. with visiting a museum. Um, but we... Um, it was an interesting study to understand um, how people who are probably planning a visit use the website and hope to use the museum. You know, it doesn't quite bridge the gap between online and on-site, but it gets closer. Um, so we, I looked at the data in aggregate and and found that. Um, you know, m different types of museums had like distributions of visitors. So encyclopedic museums and, and science museums and museums that attract a huge tourist population, they all have an, a, a similar distribution of visitors to their institutions versus a contemporary art museum who's maybe non-collecting and free they have a they have similar but different um, distributions of users. So it was an it was a really interesting study I thought, and it informed um, what we were doing on the website um, at the by the time the the study ended. I was in house at the Clifford Still Museum, so it the results of the Clifford Still Museum were sort of different than everybody's, and it sort of made sense given the strategy that we were employing online at that time. And then we changed our strategy. And we haven't repeated the study. But we, I would very much like to to see if our, um, the distribution of our users has changed since our strategy that's, has changed. That's so interesting. Um, one of the things we've talked about this semester in our class is whether or not um, we think that a museum website is a complement to the physical museum or if the website should be a destination in and of itself. Um, and amongst my classmates, we have a little bit of disagreement um, in that. Some people think, you know, that a museum website should be a standalone experience. Others think it should be more of a complementary service provided with the focus of getting those visitors insight into the actual physical museum. Um, would you say that you find it that it should be more of a, uh, its own standalone experience, or do you really take a position on that? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I have that debate a lot inside my own head. It's a really, yeah. <laughs> it's a really compelling debate. And, I mean, um, it's, it's probably difficult based on the type of museum you have as well, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... You know, one of the things that it's it's one of your questions 
coming later, looking at trends in digital media and engagement, anything you think it passes prime, what trends do you think are gaining momentum? I was actually thinking about microsites in that question mm -hmm. and, um, and whether you call it a microsite or an interactive, you know, I think when I was, this is several years ago when I was in Chicago, everyone was sort of moving away from the idea of a microsite and and having conversations about, well, the main website should just do this. Um, mm -hmm. Yet we never really got away from microsites. I just don't think we call them that anymore. Like, in essence, a digital publication is a microsite. Um, it just has certain uh, apparatus that make it also a scholarly publication or appropriate for scholarly content. Um, we have we use subdomains all the time for different projects that we're working on. The online collection is a microsite. So um, it is a really interesting question, and I really I debate with myself all the time. I'm not really sure where I fall <laughs> on any given day. I think it's I think one of the things that I really liked about the Falk study was was looking at the kind of mix of visitors that we have online and trying to understand what it is what information that they needed and you know I think I where I fall right now <laughs> this moment to this question of really what is the point of a museum website I think it's to the main point is to facilitate a visit and there's a whole lot of information that you might need to provide in being able to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think the the one thing that's become very important to the Clifford Still Museum in recent years in doing a, quite a lot of visitor research um, is to be able to show someone and illustrate what the experience of being here is like. And that includes social pictures, you know, people engaging with each other in the space. And that's been a real shift in our approach um, kind of across the board. Okay. Yeah, and on that note, one of the um, things we, look, we have looked at this semester was a study done by SFMOMA on the web motivations of their users, and they put out like a web survey. And one of the things I found really interesting from it was that um, they had just as many responses that were related to visiting as they did the top two replies, which were conducting research and the response of, I enjoy art. For mm -hmm. their question was, why are you visiting the website? Mm -hmm. um, and so if you take, how do I want to say this? They were like, they were broken up into the type of it, a visit that the that the user was planning on doing was it events exhibitions was it their first time visit were they repeat visitors so they framed all of it in the in the realm of what type of visit they were coming to anyway so mm -hmm. I feel like when you have that type of study where you're kind of already projecting that you're assuming that they're planning on visiting mm -hmm. um, I mean that that you know that goes along with this whole question of should the website be its own service should it be to implement a physical visit um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And because we're in a more global scale of visitors, like you said, with your study that, um, or your publication that, um, your print, your digital publication that you had a higher percentage of outside of the country, you know, viewers of that. 
does the website leave an impression on our out of country or out of state or out of city mm-hmm. visitors that when they finally get there, they're mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I know that there's a great museum here. I've visited their website. Let me go on it to plan my visit now. So mm-hmm. I guess for me personally, because I'm focusing on such a small museum that's located in central Texas, one of the motivations is like, are we trying to pull in people from outside of that community to come in? Or are we trying to really appeal to the people that live there whose mm-hmm. stories are technically being told? And I think that one of the ways you have to really um, measure, quote, your success of those web dynamics and web analytics is based on, like you said earlier, knowing who your audience is and Mm -hmm. that each project really does have a different audience. Um, And I think you can kind of, when you kind of step back and look at it all from a big picture, like it all makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But you kind of have to take into account all the tiny little pieces of it before you get the big picture. Um, But that study from SF NOMA, I thought was just like kind of eye opening that they kind of already assumed that they were coming there just for a visit anyway. Yeah, (laughs) Um, really insightful. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, And then just real quick, since you kind of already tackled um, the question of looking at trends in digital media and engagement, um, aside from microsites, what do you, are there anything else that you think is kind of past its prime in terms of trends? or um, things that you think are gaining momentum. I know um, from your website that you have a lot of um, um, uh, incorporation of video content into your Mm -hmm. museum websites Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Do you think that that's maybe a trend that kind of is on its way up or? I um, I think apps are dead. (laughs) Okay. Trends, (laughs) it's over. more or less. I mean, I think getting people to opt into that is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that um, I think on-site experiences of digital of the digital realm are that's something that that lots of people are looking at and figuring out how to do really well. And that could include augmented or virtual reality, which is a, is a big conversation topic in the field. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, SF MoMA just closed their Magritte exhibition, but they had um, a digital experience as part of that show that was, I think, I didn't ever make it, there to physically see it, but I think the interactive gallery was situated alongside the um, exhibition galleries for the show. And the digital component of it was all about, you know, Magritte's um, realities, hyper-realities or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. visitors could go and stand in front of a screen and they're reflection might be projected on someone else's screen or something. I didn't see it in person, like I said, but it was a really, really well-received piece as far as I understand. And that sort of the experience is the content, I think is something that SF MoMA in particular is doing really well right now and something I think a lot of museums are trying to figure out how to do. I think from my point of view, um, and this would include the SF MoMA um, piece is is having as little interface as possible. Um, 
we went through the phase where museums were building apps to have an app. Everybody had to have an app. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of, it was because museums had, museums made apps largely because museums felt like they needed to have apps, not necessarily because audience needed to have apps. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think that's why those, why that's dead now. And, and so you know, one of the things that I have spent a lot of time thinking about over the last, past couple of years is, how to have an app-like experience with no interface and using web standards to do it, which is really difficult okay. to do, um, like kind of impossible, especially as privacy issues are um, becoming you know, more urgent. It's much harder to be able to use web standards to deliver certain types of content and experiences through somebody's mobile device. Um, but that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, but yeah, the, the sort of experience as content, I think, is the thing, is the, is the moment that we're in right now, whether that includes augmented reality or virtual reality or like what SFMOMA did, which I don't even know how you would categorize that. I don't know how they describe right. it. Um, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. Okay. That's really insightful. Um, I wasn't aware that they had a digital experience like that, so I'm definitely going to have to do a little bit more research on that. Check it um, out. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, as we're winding down on time here, um, one of the important questions that I wanted to ask you, um, mostly because my focus of this project is on a small museum that has a small budget, small staff, mm -hmm. um, what are some um, changes, uh, effective changes that you think a small museum could make to its website if it if it was wanting to make changes in order to appeal better to visitor visitor engagement, um, but they were unable to do like a full website overhaul. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I don't know how feasible this is, but I I would think that this might be more feasible for a small institution in a small community than some others. But figuring out who your community is and what they want. Mm -hmm. um, and that might, that will probably include something digital. <laughs> if it doesn't, it, then the website becomes um, a piece of telling that story so that you can engage with people, you know, on-site mm -hmm. or online. So I, I think that would be kind of the first step because you don't want to create something that nobody really wants anyway. Um, in a small community, you you might, you know, is the, is the goal to increase visitation to the, the museum, or is the goal to engage um, with the community in robust ways, and then you would sort of take it from there. And let's say, I, I mean, I think the things that you're talking about, the changing demographic and telling the story of the people who are there, and I mean, that's mm -hmm. a really interesting starting point. How do you do that? Do you develop a community archive where you're kind of crowdsourcing things? Um, and that brings into question things about museum authority. Is the, is the administration of the museum comfortable with distributing the authority, the voice of authority, giving mm -hmm. it back to the community? Um, you know, it's sort of 
I suppose digital is one piece of the puzzle. And so until you have it really figured out what this organization is going to mean to whichever communities it's going to best serve, that's where your digital strategy comes from. Because you can do all sorts of things, right? Um, if the idea is to increase visitation, then you need to show people who are visiting the museum, which is like maybe a really simple thing to take on, hire a photographer right. and some talent and show visitors being social in your space. Um, yeah. I think you had mentioned video and, and the role that video is playing for museums. I think that uh, I think video I would think most most museums are probably doing video. Maybe not most small museums, though. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a very effective way to tell a story. I think the thing about video that's tricky um, is that it's time-based media. And you have to convince someone to watch your thing before you've given them any reason to watch your thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good point. You have to you have to you know really think about your story and how to engage people. And we just I just produced a podcast for the Clifford Still Museum for our fall show, which is curated by Sandra Still, who is Clifford Still's younger daughter. And I spent a year researching how This American Life tells stories tells audio mm -hmm. stories, and became a student of This American Life and the narrative podcast format, and then, we, and then I used all of that knowledge to produce this podcast, which I think is really engaging and been super successful. I, um, I saw that on Twitter you had posted that you had your first driveway moment with someone <laughs> having to continue listening to it. They couldn't get out of the car. I saw that on Twitter. So that's yeah, really cool. I was really proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, and just a note about storytelling is like if there's a type of content that you find really engaging or that you're better than just you, your visitors find really engaging figure out how they do the thing that they do and then do that. Um, okay. I feel like that's such terrible advice. <laughs> no, that's actually that's actually very good because if, if the museum is potentially pivoting away from its traditional maybe visitor base and they're needing to appeal maybe to a younger, more in tune with the Internet, you know, kind of group of people, you're not always going to appeal to the same the same mm -hmm. demographic um, and there's only so you know uh, for a small community there's only so much you can do with your current membership base or your current visitor base you know yeah, um, yeah. if you if you don't have the resources to constantly be changing out your exhibits or bringing in you know blockbuster you know artworks or, or whatever it is you have to be relative to the people that are there all the time mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's a really good point that you just made about figuring out what it is that appeals to them yeah, um, and then meet doing them, that. Meet them where they are, and you could do that by, you know, find someone in your community that's making things, you know, making podcasts or making videos, and that's part of this community that you're trying to attract, and involve them in the project in, in a robust way. Let them lead the project, and you know, 
there's a lot of goodwill that comes from making that effort, but you're going to be attracting whomever their audience is too. Right. Um, so, yeah. That's no, that's advice. a great, great advice. I really appreciate um, all of your answers today. Um, sure. And you just taking the time to instill some of your knowledge and insight with me. Um, hopefully I can take a lot of what you've um, shared today and kind of incorporate it into my project going forward. Um, and I look forward to more of your podcasts. <laughs> yeah, have a listen and let me know what you think of it. Um, Will and, do. And feel free to follow up with your final project. I'd love to be able to take a look at it. I, I think you're, you're, um, you're approaching this with a lot of savvy, and I'm interested to see where it goes. Well, I'm, I'm also interested to see where it goes. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah, hopefully it will be good. So. Good, good. All and right. hi, Dana, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>